Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God, and I think I'll be able to do that a little bit better this Lord's Day than I have been the past couple. Um, <clears throat> my my voice is a little bit clearer and stronger, although not 100%. Hopefully, you are not distracted um, at all, but um, we can uh, keep our focus on the text. So let's Let's do that. Let's come to the Lord now with uh, his word in our hands and look at what we have before us. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, so find your way there if you're not there already. And I want to say before I say anything else, Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, This is not only the first Sunday of the month, it's the first day of the entire year, a day that traditionally marks a time of new beginnings when People engage in that rather secular and hopeless, albeit well-intentioned, practice of making resolutions that typically go nowhere. Be that as it may, we Christians don't rely on secular and unbiblical practices like that. And if you should, uh, and if you do, then you should repent, of course. But there's certainly nothing wrong, I think, with taking stock of our lives, and all the more at the beginning of the new year. And that's what I'd like to do this Sunday. And the sage of Ecclesiastes has just the thing for us to consider. It is a foundational characteristic of the Christian life that we all could do a better job of expressing. I know I can. And it's rejoicing. That's it. Rejoicing. As I hope to show you, biblical joy is an exclusive element of the Christian life and should characterize us all the time. Huh? All the time? Well, that's hard for me to imagine myself doing with the condition our country is in. Inflation and gas prices so high, the crime rate even higher. Even food is doubly expensive, and you get less for your money, too. It's maddening to think that none of this was necessary if we had the right man at the helm leading the country, and even more maddening to think that we have another two years of this. What's there to be so joyful about? Well, hopefully that's not your, your feeling, and that's not your question, but if it is, thank you for being honest. I have the answer for you in our text, but those are certainly the sentiments of most unbelievers that live around us and are in our world, especially those who are barely making ends meet. And they may very well ask you that question. And if you're not sure how to answer, the sage tells you in our text. We pick up in chapter 11. You might remember where the sage ramps up the importance of living godly wisdom, a godly wisdom-based life that life God has gifted to us and is designed to please him. And more specifically, he has shown us what this life looks like or should look like with three foundational characteristics. And we considered the first one before the holiday back in verses 1 to 6. And it was boldness. We need to live boldly, confidently, with, with great assurance in Christ. We made that point, hopefully convincingly. The second of these characteristics is in verses 7 to 10, and that is joyfully. We are to live our lives joyfully, and that is the thrust of this short section. I put it this way. The godly wise is joyful. 
and rejoices his entire life responsibly by viewing life from the perspective of death, by following his godly desires until he must account for them before God at the end of time, and by freeing himself from anything that is injurious to a joyful life. As we work our way through this text, and as you've heard the thrust in those words, I think you can see that the sage has emphasized joy. It's unmistakable. He describes this new life of ours in verse 7 as pleasant. And he commands us in verses 8 and 9 to rejoice. And in verse 10, to remove whatever hinders rejoicing. There's no question that rejoicing is paramount in this new life that God gives us. It should characterize those who have received it. So let's see how the sage develops this. First important truth that we have in verse 7 is this. The godly wise finds life joyful and considers it good to be alive. He says the light is pleasant and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Now the sage, of course, is speaking metaphorically here in verse 7. Light and sun are parallel to each other and they refer to life. And we find confirmation from this back as far as chapter 6, verse 5, where the sage talks about a stillborn. And he says this about the stillborn. It has never seen the sun or known anything. To never see the sun, the light of day, means not to be born, much less in the know about life. Conversely, then, to see the sun means to be alive and in the know about life. And that the sun light is pleasant to the eyes means it's great to be alive. Now that's the testimony of those who have received God's new life that the book of Ecclesiastes describes, by the way, in previous chapters as a relationship with God. They know just how wonderful and how joyous this life is. That joy is what the world desperately seeks but cannot have. That's the joy we're talking about. It's exclusive to this new life from God. Only the godly wise experience this joy. Those redeemed of God, whom we know today as Christians, who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And would you ever think, honestly, would you ever think that you have exclusive rights to a, jo- a truly joyful life? Exclusive rights, you say? I mean, I know people in this world who are not Christians and seem very happy just as they are. So how do we explain that? Well, my answer is that they are not, nor can they ever be, as happy as they could be. While it is true that some people in the world appear very joyful, we have to understand that their joy is but a pale vestige of true spiritual joy, the kind that comes only with new life in Christ. Now, here's why that has to be true. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit produces this fruit only in those whom he indwells. And he indwells those whom he calls Christians. 
And the same goes for the rest of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, by the way. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. At best, the world without Christ counterfeits these genuine fruits of the Spirit. Now, maybe you're convinced, but only just. And that's because of those non-Christians that you happen to know who have this counterfeit joy, who also display it much more aggressively than most Christians do their real joy. Yes, and that's on us. But no matter how aggressively a display of counterfeit, it's still counterfeit. And I'll also point out that the genuine joy is different than worldly joy by nature. Now listen to this very carefully. Here's what I mean by that. Joy that fallen individuals experience is situational. In other words, it presents only when the situation calls for it. Fallen individuals have no joy in trials, much less rejoice because of severe trials. Now that just makes absolutely no sense to them. Now their joy is the byproduct only of good times. So their joy comes and goes. Now, the Christian joy is not situationally based. It's rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that will never change, which means our joy will never go away. It'll abide in us, and it cannot be doused by the worst of times, unless, of course, we let them douse it. But we can and are commanded to rejoice in Christ all the time, especially in hardships. That's James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So this truth, that our joy is not situational, but deep and abiding, is is one big reason that we Christians consider it a good thing to be alive. Joy should radiate from our new life in Christ. Radiate. In spite of those outside of Christ who experience a counterfeit joy, there are plenty more in this world who find life one big disappointment. Oh, yes. People are mean. Life is harsh. Things never go my way. Stop the world. I want to get off. And some do. You have to think that a A person's life is pretty bad when he prefers to be dead instead. Book of Ecclesiastes has repeatedly argued that the new life is a gift from God, and it's good. The ideal, to be precise. Those of us who have received new life in Christ can enjoy it even though we live in a fallen world that is under the power of the evil one, even though we too are susceptible to the, to the dictates of a depraved world, natural disasters, crime, abusive government, sick, uh, sickness, disease, betrayal, and at some point, death. But Christians don't have to let these facts of life defeat them or douse their joy in Christ, and they shouldn't although sadly some do. What are tragedies you see and setbacks to the world are God-given opportunities for us, 
for our growth, to serve the Lord, to minister to others. The bad situations of this world become for Christians really a win-win situation until the end when it really gets good. Now, you may or may not have known that you can rejoice continually in the presence of severe trials. Now that you do, you also need to be convinced that it is your responsibility to, which means rejoicing is not automatic. Some of you might be saying, oh good, I thought something was wrong with me. No, it's not automatic. We Christians are responsible to cultivate it. So, How else will we show the world what they're missing if we don't cultivate this joy? Now, you might be wondering, how do we cultivate spiritual joy? How do we make sure that we express it through our lives in ways that honor God and make our faith attractive? Well, according to verses 8, 9, and 10, There are at least three ways to rejoice responsibly. And here's the first. It's with one eye on death. I might put it that way in summary form. What I mean by that is the godly wise rejoices in his his entire life responsibly by viewing life from the perspective of death. Look at verse 8. Indeed, if a person lives many years... Let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Now, the sage stresses the fact that the time that we are to rejoice is always. That's what the verse says. Now, in the present, in the moment, each and every day of our entire new life, And what should motivate our enjoyment of the present all the more is the fact that we know dark days are coming. Now, that might not be a shock to you. We all know the older we grow, the more fleeting life becomes, the more our senses become less sensitive, our minds less sharp, our bodies less supple. There are sure to be health problems that will affect our sight and our hearing. We won't be able to accomplish what we could in our prime. But are these the dark days that the sage has in mind? Are we not to rejoice even in those days? He just told us that that rejoicing is a characteristic of the Christian life that must be expressed all our days, right? Old age is not an exception to to rejoice or an excuse to rejoice less. And let me digress for just a moment with a related thought. We never outgrow our usefulness to the Lord either, no matter how old we get. And sadly, some Christians think they do, but it's a worldly principle, not a biblical one. God always has work for us to do no matter our age, our status, our physical ability, our locale. We always are responsible to be about the work of ministry in some form or fashion while we still have breath and our minds. The Lord is finished with you when he takes you home. We have no excuse not to be busy about the Lord's work, no matter how old or how physically impaired. You can minister for Christ from a sickbed. And I would remind you that one of our members who's a shut-in does just that. 
and has for 25 years. I bring that up to say this. We, know more, we are no more justified in excusing ourselves from enjoying God's new life just because we grow old or grow closer to death than we are in dropping out of Christian service because of old age. The sage cannot mean then that we believers should rejoice only in the prime of our lives. Otherwise, most of us ought to just pack it up and go home. No, when, when we don't rejoice just because there are good things to rejoice in, that's what happens in the prime of life, right? Like vitality and strength and good hearing and vision and stamina and great opportunities that are unique to the young because someday all of that will be greatly diminished if not gone altogether and there will be nothing much to rejoice in. No, that is not what the sage is talking about. We rejoice through all our years, all of them. More than that, we just argued that our theology assures us that joy is not based on circumstance, right? It's not situational. The practice of rejoicing should characterize Christians all their days until they close their eyes in death. Okay, so what does the sage mean then by his contrast between now and and the abundant dark days to come. Well, he's using the contrast simply to urge us believers, both young and old, to waste no time rejoicing in the moment over what we can see by the light of the sun, what we experience right now and with all that is in us while we can. That's what he means. What I'm saying is that the reference to dark days ahead is really a figure for the end of life, for death. Here are my reasons for that. Number one, that's certainly in keeping with the larger context of the book. We've heard this from the author of Ecclesiastes over and over again. Number two, in this verse he calls these dark days to come futility, which is not the first time that he has spoken of death this way. And number three, the topic of death is unmistakable in verse 9, which we'll get to in a moment. So if death is in the mind of the sage, then what he's calling us to do is to waste none of our precious new life fussing, murmuring, complaining, grumbling, bemoaning our situation, pitying ourselves, or even pining for a different lot in life. Because when we do that, we're not rejoicing. We're not singing God's praises. The message here is this. Devote none of your new life to joyless moments because soon your voice will not ring out with praise to God this side of heaven ever again. Do you know that was King David's reason that he gave to God in Psalm 6 for for keeping him from being killed by his enemies. This is a reason that David gave to God. Save me because. Because why? Well, this is what he cries out. He says, return, Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your mercy. Here it comes. Because there's no mention of you in death. The grave, in the grave, who will praise you? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Because the voice has been silenced. When you know that your new life in Christ is short, You want to live it, all of it, 
in thankfulness to God who gave it to you. Beloved, don't rob God by stealing parts of his life that he entrusted to you by spending it sulking or feeling sorry for yourself, whining about being treated unfairly. Oh, what hours we spend worrying about ourselves in these joyless moments. Sage says in verse 8, in essence, stop wasting time on self-absorbed thoughts and be thankful to God. Rejoice in Him and find His new life for you pleasant because soon you won't be able to do that under the sun anymore. Now we learn yet another way to rejoice responsibly. It's in verse 9. And if I were to summarize it, I would say it is with one eye on judgment. The first way was with one eye on the end, that is death. The second way is with one eye on judgment. If I expand that, I would say that the godly wise rejoices his entire life responsibly by following godly desires until he must account for them before God at the end of time. Let's look at verse 9. Rejoice, young man, while you are young, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. It sounds kind of bleak, doesn't it, when you first read it, but you've got to understand this in context. And I might ask or point out, if you're observant, it might strike you as odd that the sage begins verse 9 by singling out the young man. Why address the young man? Up to this point, his general audience has been all godly wise folk, old and uh, young and old. Well, as we argued from verse 7 and 8, both young and old should rejoice and be glad all the years of their life, right to the grave. The message is clearly waste no time enjoying every moment of your God-given new life while you can. Now we're hit with what seems to be an abrupt change in the audience, in his readership. Well, not really. I would argue that the sage is still addressing young and old who possess God's gift of new life. And I would argue that he is using the figure of the prime of life to talk about the new life and the young man to talk about the one who possesses this new life. It's a figure. Let me explain that. As you know, the sage prefers to use the epitome of a context in order to maximize the impact of his message, right? He didn't just talk about pleasure. He referred to the hedonistic way of life, which epitomizes pleasure, right? Do you remember that? He used the king as the epitome of the rich and the powerful. He used government as the ultimate context of abuse of power. This is, his, this is his MO. This is how he works. So in this passage, he uses the prime of life. When a person is the healthiest and strongest and the most cognitively aware to refer to the ideal life, the new life that God gives the Christian life. And just as the prime of life ends in old age... So the new life ends in death. It's a life of constant praise and rejoicing in God who gave it, 
no matter the circumstances, until death takes it away. When we go to the grave where the sweet light of the sun doesn't shine. Is there a message here for young Christians in the prime of their lives? Yes, but, but it's the same message for all Christians. Waste no time in enjoying every moment of your God-given new life while you, while you can. Now, I would admit we might tell those who are young, hey, rejoice because youth is fleeting. Rejoice in God because your youth will be over before you know it. And they need to hear that since they, they do waste time, lots of it these days, on being depressed, being troubled. And it's true that young people can rejoice in ways during their prime that they will not be that will not be available to them in their old age, such as more time and energy and strength and opportunities. Absolutely, there is a message here for young Christians. But the days of youth are not, are not days that anyone can hold on to, right? Nor should we ever pine for them in our old age. That's not for the redeemed. That's not the way for redeemed people to act who have eternity in their hearts. No, the older we get, the more we should pine for our eternal home, not the days of our youth. So having said that, I want to emphasize, please, please get this. I want to emphasize that it's a mistake to restrict verse 9 to the young. The sage is talking to all of us, both young and old. And the primary application here, as was in verses 7 and 8, is that we all should enjoy a new and redeemed life that we have received from God to the fullest. Because like the days of one's youth, our new life in Christ is fleeting as well. And before we know it, we are dead. Sage looks at life from a very realistic point of view. So how do we rejoice responsibly according to this verse? Well, like the young man, the redeemed in this new life will follow the pleasures and impulses of their heart and the desires of their eyes, but not in a hedonistic, selfish, and irresponsible way like so many young people do. No, the believer's heart, remember, is redeemed, right? Which means that he can desire what the Lord desires. He can have godly impulses, His disposition, uh, represented by his heart, is to please the Lord, which is the basis of his contentment and deep and abiding joy. So when the heart of the godly loves God, submits to God's sovereign will, desires to please the Lord, we would be safe in saying that he will desire the same things that God desires. And whatever he desires to do then, in that condition, will be righteous and praiseworthy. All that God brings his way to see is an occasion for rejoicing. Now, it's in the last clause of verse 9 that we find the key to such responsible rejoicing. He says, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Here's the reason why the redeemed can rejoice in a way that the world cannot. They understand that there will be a judgment. 
The world has no concept of this, frankly, and it is repulsed at this thought. But those of us who enjoy this new life in Christ, we're far from repulsed. We anticipate it with joy as well. This is this sentence, this last sentence in verse 9, is actually a positive statement for us. It's an encouraging word to the godly to rejoice in light of the judgment to come in the end when we will have an opportunity to give a good report to the Lord on the day of his, of his assessing. The idea should be this. I cannot wait to see Christ face to face and present him with my life's investment for his pleasure and approval. Is that your desire? Is that your sentiment? It should be. And it's one of the greatest biblical motivations for godly living. Now, I want to hasten to the very last word in this section then. It continues the theme of rejoicing responsibly, and it's a third way. It states negatively, or puts it in the negative, where the last two were stated positively. And I would say it this way. In summary, it's with one eye on our hearts. If I were to expand that, I would say that the godly wise rejoices in his entire life responsibly by freeing himself from anything that is injurious to rejoicing. He says in verse 10, So remove sorrow from your heart and keep pain away from your body because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Again, the prime of life is a figure for the new life in God, the new life that God gives. For us Christians, that's the life in Christ. That's the new life and that is what the sage is referring to. And he says that we can rejoice responsibly in it here this way, by removing sorrow from our hearts. Or perhaps better, trouble. Trouble. All believers are tempted, of course, to be troubled in all kinds of ways about living a godly life in a fallen world. We become anxious. We become fearful. It's by no means easy. But things like worry and anxiety and fear and timidity, those are matters of the mind. You need to understand that. And there are many New Testament commands to Christians to renew the mind. We might say the inner man, the heart. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul prays for the Ephesians specifically that God would grant them, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. That means in the, in the heart, in the mind. He talks of the conflict between the desire to serve Christ and the desire to serve self in Romans 7, 22 to 23. He says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. If Christians are going to rejoice responsibly in God, they need to work on protecting the inner man, the mind, the heart. They must have one eye on their heart. Proverbs chapter 4 23 says, guard your heart with all diligence because from it flow 
the springs of life. Everything begins there. We need to watch what we let into our hearts, what we entertain. We need to be vigilant to cleanse our hearts of any rogue, ungodly thoughts and repent to God for any sinful thoughts. The heart is the control center of the body, beloved. Everything that we do is first born there. It's there that God judges us. So Paul calls us to renew, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, Ephesians 4.23. And that means to saturate your minds with sound biblical doctrine so that we will be sure to think and act biblically. We need to be careful about what goes in our hearts. The second phrase, to keep pain away from your body or trouble, it makes little sense if we take it literally. How do we, how do we avoid physical pain and trouble? It's, it's very difficult. In, in fact, it's impossible. Besides, the Bible never commands us to seek a pain-free life. Since experiencing pain is not a sin, unless, of course, it's self-inflicted. And, and actually, it becomes a platform on which we grow ourselves and we minister to others, right? Pain, no matter what, to what degree we might experience it, is beneficial to our Christian walk. Peter says that God is pleased when we are painfully persecuted for our faith. And Paul says that we should expect physical persecution and, and ministry wear and tear on the body. Listen to what he says or how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, that's the body, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, that's the heart. Even if pain were something bad, we cannot avoid it on any kind of consistent basis. That is not under our control. As a result of all this, I would suggest that the sage is really telling us to keep sin, wickedness, and any kind of immorality which causes us trouble and pain far from us. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 6, verses 12 and 14. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law but under grace here we see a very invaluable principle the principle that what's in our hearts is what will determine our behavior His reference to the members of our body really, in this context, refers to the faculties of the mind. And we're not to entertain, therefore, sinful thinking because if we do, it will lead to sinful behavior. Now, that's an ironclad principle in Scripture. It's all over the place. It's all over the New Testament. The well-familiar Romans 12, too, for example, teaches that it's by the renewing of our minds that we transform our lives, right? So resisting temptation certainly is something we can do. To sin or not to sin in our bodies is within our control. We might not be able to prevent any, every sinful thought, 
but we have the ability to prevent sinful thoughts from making their way out into the hands. You know what I mean by that? Into our behavior. And the Lord has given us plenty of strategies with which to fight off temptation from the world and the flesh and the devil. So the last part of verse 10 expresses the urgency of the sage's command to us to protect the heart from birthing sinful thoughts and our bodies from acting them out. He says, because a youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Again, youth and the prime of life represent the godly and the new life that God gives. This is the Christian life. The idea then is live the Christian life because it is the prime of life. It is the ideal life. Live it wisely, righteously. Keep a watch on your heart and behavior so that you can make the most of this fleeting time in your life. Redeem the times, Paul would say. Just as youth is fleeting, this new life, this redeemed life is over before you know it. So make the most of it. So we draw this to a close. We might ask, how does the New Testament echo this principle? The sage's message to us is an important one. We are responsible to enjoy every moment of our new life in Christ and to be careful not to waste any of it on joyless moments. And I'm not saying that there are not times when we should mourn over what is legitimately mournful. uh, Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. But the nature of our joy, being a gift of the Holy Spirit, is such that even legitimate mourning will not cancel it out or douse it in any way. It's deep and abiding. We can mourn and we can grieve, but we always know to whom we belong and where we're going. This deep and deep-seated and foundational joy We need, to, we need to be well familiar with. God's new life should be characterized by it. And if it isn't, then that's not honoring to God. Think of it this way. We should show him how much we are thankful for this life in Christ that he has given us by reveling in it. More than this, reveling in our new life in Christ is also what makes the faith attractive to so many fallen and lost people who long for this kind of joy that's ours in Christ but can never have without him. Now I know the fallen world is not conducive to rejoicing in God's gift of life, but this is our context, and we are responsible to enjoy God. So the threefold strategy that we looked at in Ecclesiastes 11, 7 to 10, rejoicing while keeping an eye on death, on judgment, and on anything that threatens our hearts, where joy lives, is actually expressed in different words by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, We read verses 6 to 10 in our scripture reading this morning, this passage Here, Paul calls us in verse 6 and in verse 8 to be always of good courage. Another way to speak of joyful life or joyful living. Always be of good courage. This is our responsibility. 
And the way we do this is with one eye on the end of life, our new life. For us, death means only a glorious reception into heaven. And Paul puts it this way in verse 8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's our preference. That's how we express our joy in Christ in this new life, by living life with an unmistakable preference to be with him and not apart from him. And to prefer him now works out in joy. Joy for the kind of life that we have in Christ now, which is as close to what we will experience in full at the end of time. Paul says that we live, our, we, we live our joy responsibly also with one eye on judgment in verses 9 and 10. He says we make it our goal to live pleasing to Christ because we must give an account to him before his judgment seat of how we represented him in this life. We wor- how we worked for his glory and how we invested our time wisely in the kingdom. So, beloved, as long as we live, no matter what our our physical circumstances may be, there are always ways, of course, to use our bodies to please Christ. Sometimes that will take some creative thinking on our part, but, but let me stress that the goal of our living, this new life in Christ, is primarily for the purpose of pleasing Him. Now, that's very important. It's not to please ourselves. It's not even primarily for the benefit of others, not principally. No, it's for pleasing Christ. And that means that you can do many things in life that God calls you to do that you might not want to do, but you should always want to please Christ. Christ did not want to go to the cross. We mentioned that before our Lord's table this morning. He didn't want to go to the cross. He did for our sakes. It was for the joy of God's pleasure and our salvation that he endured the cross, says the writer of Hebrews. And when we do for his sake, even when we don't relish what we have to do, then we have much to look forward to on the day of his assessing fire. If your primary goal in life is to please Christ, then you will carry out even those tough assignments that God has for you to do, whether you like it or not. The joy of doing is not so much uh, in the doing of 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 the task, but in the knowing that God is pleased with us as we do it. Remember that next time you think that you cannot do something that God calls you to do you'll discover that you can and you will. And the joy that comes from God's pleasure and approval will overshadow you and be evident to those who observe you. You wind up encouraging your fellow Christians. It's always uplifting to be with somebody who's always joyful. And you wind up making the faith attractive to unbelievers, even during the gloomiest periods of life. What a great challenge as we go into this new year. Our Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us in providing this. This very special passage calls us to be joyful, defines us as joyful. 
gives us the responsibility of rejoicing and shows us a threefold strategy that we might use in being careful to rejoice even though it may be difficult at times here in this fallen world. Father, we pray that you will that you will see just how much we revel in this new life in Christ. And we pray then that as we do, you would use us in great ways as you still have work for us to do here. We pray that that our rejoicing would be would be loud, would be clear, would be evident to all around us would be contagious in the church and it would make the faith attractive for your glory for your honor and for the benefit of your church we pray in jesus name amen